Welcome back to another episode of the Unlearning Podcast. My name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and I am your coach, your guide, and your biggest cheerleader on your unlearning journey. Today's episode is going to be a short time of exploration on the meaning of the cross, on the meaning of the crucifixion. In this episode, I want to talk about all things Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, and an alternative view when looking at the cross in hopes of inspiring and encouraging you to think more deeply about the extravagant love of God. This week is Holy Week, which means we are making our way towards the cross and towards Easter. This past Sunday, all churches all over the world celebrated Palm Sunday, where the gospel writers tell us that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and the people waved palm branches in Jesus' honor. This is where we get the term Palm Sunday. It's strange that our Bibles still say this, that this is a triumphant entry, because nothing about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was triumphant. Jesus entered into the city on a borrowed donkey, not on a war horse. He wasn't dragging behind him captured prisoners of war. There were no trumpets announcing his entrance. Remember that Jesus did not come into Jerusalem to exact revenge or to conquer his enemies. Jesus came to die. Jesus made his way towards Jerusalem because he knew people would kill him. He knew he was going to be killed. Most people run away from death and flee situations where they know they could be killed. But Jesus made his way towards it. It's so big and so extravagant that Jesus refused to hide and avoid and run away from the very worst of human behavior. As we make our way towards Easter, we also celebrate a holiday called Monday Thursday. Monday means mandate or command, and it refers to the new commandment Jesus gave his disciples at his Last Supper. In John chapter 13, we read about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, Jesus foreshadowing his own death, and Jesus giving his disciples this new command. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. End quote. We have the Old Commandments, and we have the Mosaic Law, which is found in Exodus and Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy. But given all of those laws and all of those commands, Jesus decided to give us a new commandment. And instead of the commandment to follow all the rules and obey religious authority, instead of repeating the purity laws, the commands to be ceremonial clean, Jesus gave us a command to love one another as he has loved us. This is pretty powerful, given how punitive Mosaic law truly is. Jesus gave us the command to love one another, and that command is rooted in grace, rooted in kindness. On Monday, Thursday, we celebrate this moment. Some churches talk about the crucifixion too. Others simply hint at it on Monday, Thursday. But generally, this is the theology we experience in those kinds of worship services. Some people see love as a form of control especially parents. 
Perhaps you had a father or a mother who took things from you or took away certain privileges as a form of love or a form of love rooted in discipline. Lots of church discipline, lots of moments when church leaders excommunicate people from the fold. Those leaders often believe that their love, their protection of the church is rooted in love. We are disciplining these church members because we love the church and love the people that we are excommunicating, so much so that we would kick them out. I have seen this happen time and time again, and it's just simply ridiculous. In addition to seeing love as a form of control, love is often understood as suffering. Many Christians believe that love is suffering. And so when Jesus commands us to love one another, he is commanding us to suffer for and with one another. As Christians, this seems right. This seems like what we should do, but it's just not true. Love is not suffering. No matter what you see happening on the cross, please don't interpret that as love is suffering. Love is not suffering. That's not to say that you won't suffer and experience pain in relationships, but it's love is not suffering. Putting Christ on the cross was not a loving thing to do. Christ allowing himself to be crucified was loving of him, but it is not a model for how we should experience love in all of our relationships. Remember that Christ is God and we are not. Love should above all else alleviate suffering. We don't need to avoid suffering, but we certainly don't need to seek it out or perpetuate it. Love should alleviate pain and suffering. It should increase the quality of your life, not diminish it. And so if love is not suffering and love is not control, what is it? Obviously, we can do a whole podcast series on defining a healthy understanding of love and how we practice it, but I want to use today's podcast to give you a big picture definition of love. What is a big picture definition of love? When I was an undergraduate student at North Carolina Central University, I was an English major, and one of the books we read was E.M. Forrester's A Passage to India. I'll never forget my favorite quote from that book. Forrester wrote, Kindness, kindness, and more kindness. This is what I believe to be the way of Jesus. Kindness, kindness, and more kindness. It's as if Jesus said, a lot's going to happen in the next 48 hours, and you're going to feel scared and hurt, and you're going to feel lost. No matter what happens, fix your heart on doing just this. Show kindness, kindness, and more kindness. Rooting love in kindness is a healthier understanding of what it means to love one another. And it has nothing to do, kindness has nothing to do with control or perpetuating suffering. And so after Monday Thursday, we celebrate Good Friday, the day we remember the cross. When I was growing up, I went to Sunrise Presbyterian Church in Miami, Florida, and every Good Friday, my church would put on this amazing dinner where we ate, and as we ate, actors would come out dressed in clothing of ancient Palestinian people, and they would perform monologues, telling stories about Jesus from the four Gospels. It was so surreal for me because in those Good Friday dinners, Scripture came alive. At the end of every Good Friday dinner, our pastor at the time, Rev. Maynard Pittendre, 
would stand up as Joseph of Arimathea and tell us that it is finished, that the crucifixion is over, that Jesus has died. Joseph of Arimathea was the wealthy gentleman who paid for Jesus to be buried in his tomb. Now, I'm not sure what Holy Week traditions you are participating in, but I do want to encourage you to find a church to go to this weekend, even if it's a church that's completely different than what you are used to. If you grew up in a non-denominational church, you might find Catholic or Episcopalian churches to be quite healing. If you grew up in a more high church setting, you might find Presbyterian or Lutheran churches to be good experiences. This entire week is holy, and it's a sacred moment for all of us, no matter what you believe. And so I want to encourage you to make time for that. As we make our way towards Easter, I want you to think about what the cross means to you. What does Christ on the cross mean to you? A traditional understanding of the cross is rooted in theological terms we call the atonement. Our theology of the atonement is this belief that our Father God sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross as an atonement or sacrifice for our sins. In this atonement theology, Jesus' main purpose in taking on human form was to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus is understood to be our sacrificial lamb in this atonement theology, and the Passover in Exodus foreshadows that. Many conservative Christians believe that that all humanity deserves the cross, that we deserve eternal damnation and separation from God. Atonement theology is rooted in that kind of thinking, and it states that our sin makes us worthy of that horrific death, not Jesus. This is the traditional view. This is the traditional understanding. The good news is that Christ died on our behalf, and in so long as we accept the sacrifice of Christ, we will never, ever have to experience a separation from God like the separation Jesus experienced when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a traditional atonement view of the cross. It's also called substitutionary atonement, with Jesus being our substitute. Now, if if that was hard to hear, I'm so grateful you're still listening, okay? I know the theology of atonement can be super triggering and it can activate trauma, but I'm really, really grateful that we walked through that and that you're still listening, okay? Because I really think it's important to kind of name what is hurtful so that we can begin to articulate what is not and what is healthy. So another view of the cross, and again, this is just food for thought, something to think about. Another view of the cross of Christ is that the cross is not about substitutionary atonement. Perhaps Jesus did not come to die. Perhaps he came to live and to live among us so that we might have the opportunity to know and experience the love of God more fully, so that we might have the opportunity to experience this abundant life that Jesus so often talks about. All throughout the four Gospels, we read about Jesus deconstructing traditional understandings of Scripture. Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say dot, dot, dot. Every time Jesus points something out like that, Jesus is pointing out to a discrepancy between the Mosaic law and the heart of our Creator God. And so we need to take those moments very seriously. 
Some people believe that Jesus' death on the cross was the death of our toxic understanding of God. During this time, the time of Christ, Rome was occupying Palestine. That is why when you read scripture, there are a lot of Roman governors in the time of Jesus, like Herod and Pontius Pilate. Rome occupied ancient Palestine at that time. And so naturally, the Jews believed that the Messiah, the promised Christ, would be someone who would liberate them from the political and economic oppression of whoever was dominating them, that the Messiah would restore Israel to its rightful place. But we know Jesus didn't do that. Instead of coming into Jerusalem on a war horse with prisoners of war, we remember every Palm Sunday that instead of exacting revenge on Israel's enemies, Jesus came on a donkey, a borrowed donkey, and allowed himself to be crucified. He came in on that borrowed donkey and wept over Jerusalem. Jesus is the furthest thing from this political and economic liberator that many people imagined. And and then in that context, Jesus' death is the death of those expectations. After three years of healing, of enlightenment, after three years of witnessing the miracles of Jesus, religious leaders felt deeply threatened by Jesus and wanted him executed. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus consistently called out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And so when they finally got fed up, they silenced him through the crucifixion. Growing up in the evangelical church, we were often told that we put Christ on the cross, that regular people recruited government leaders to arrest and crucify Jesus, as if we are guilty of the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ rests on our hands. I want to challenge this. I want to encourage you to really look at scripture and to think through that. I'm going to read to you John chapter 11, verses 45 through 54, the passage in John where it's about the plot to kill Jesus. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, there was a plot to kill him. And as I read, listen for who really commissions this execution. Who leads it? Is it the regular civilian or is it clergy? Or is it a government official? Okay, listen in. So here we go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead, They believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with his disciples. End quote. If you listen closely, you would have heard that it was the chief priests and the Pharisees who wanted Jesus dead. 
not the average person or the common people. The religious leaders wanted him dead because Jesus threatened their power and their influence over the masses. So every time a pastor makes you feel like all of humanity is guilty and all of humanity, because of sin, has blood on their hands, the blood of Christ on their hands, refer back to John chapter 11. We did not crucify Christ. The religious leaders did. And I believe the crucifixion of Christ says more about the church and religious leaders than it does about the sinful nature of humanity. Jesus threatened the power of religious leaders. Jesus deconstructed their toxic theology. Jesus brought people back to the source of their being, back to the core of their spirituality. Remember that the moment when Jesus met with the woman at Samaria, the woman at the well, he told the Samaritan woman that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship God in both spirit and truth. In other words, spiritual health is not going to be about following a set of rules, laws, or getting the approval of religious leaders. Spiritual health is about genuinely being connected to God in your spirit and truth. And these religious leaders were denying the genuine work of God in their midst. They were quenching the work of the Spirit. And despite all of that, God loved them too. You see, Jesus could have stopped the crucifixion. In the moment when Jesus was being arrested and one of his disciples pulled out a sword to defend him, he stopped the man from going any further and allowed the religious leaders to arrest him. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, Jesus said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have stopped the crucifixion, but he didn't. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified because he loves us, all of us, including hypocritical religious leaders. Because despite the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders, his love heals, God's love redeems, and nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I believe in the gospel. I believe that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I don't believe that we have to repent in order to give and receive mercy. On the cross, while in the midst of tremendous agony and pain, Jesus already forgave the religious leaders who put him there. He prayed, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In the kingdom of God, there is mercy long before there is repentance. Before we even know how we messed up or what we did wrong, God offers us kindness, kindness, and more kindness. And the best part of this moment is not Christ on the cross, but all that is to come. When I moved to Los Angeles in 2015, I attended a mostly LGBT church in North Hollywood called Christ Chapel of the Valley. One Easter Sunday, Pastor Gerald preached a sermon where after every other sentence, he said, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. He said something like, I know life is hard, but Sunday is coming. And I know you feel overwhelmed, but Sunday is coming. And I know you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but Sunday is coming. 
At first, I found that really annoying. <laughs> but then I began to whisper the phrase to myself, Sunday is coming. And as I began to repeat Pastor Gerald's words, I began to cry. I realized that all of the pain and heartache I was experiencing and all that I had experienced in my lifetime, I realized that that's not the end of the story. It's never the end of the story. And the cross is never the end of Jesus' story. Sunday is coming. On Easter Sunday, Christ rose from the dead. Christ conquered the grave. Despite the worst behavior of religious leaders, Christ overcame. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. My therapist recently told me that the work of God is not fragile. So let me say that again. The work of God within you is not fragile. It's not easily broken. So all of the ways that you have grown and evolved and changed into a more mature and kind person, that does not go away because of the challenges you face or because you mess up again. The work of God is not fragile. And so even with the crucifixion of Christ, the miracles and healing and teachings of Christ still stand. They still heal and they still redeem. It is the spring of 2022 and there is still an empty grave. It is 2022 and there is still an empty grave. No matter what you're going through, no matter how much pain and agony you might feel at this moment, Sunday is coming. Christ rose from the dead. Sunday is coming. Oh, death, where is your sting? Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. I hope this different understanding of the cross was interesting to you and that it provided you with some food for thought. No matter what you believe about God and about Good Friday and about the cross, I pray that Easter Sunday renews your sense of hope and it helps you to remember that the best is yet to come. As we end this episode, I want to read to you Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. And as I read this passage, I want you to see this as God's love for you. As I read Paul's words to the Roman church, I want you to remember that he wrote this during a time when the church was being heavily persecuted. So keep that in mind as I, as I read. So here we go. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are being accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you make your way towards Easter Sunday, I want to encourage you to meditate on the extravagant love of God. Remember, Jesus' new commandment to us is that we might love one another, that we might show kindness, kindness, and more kindness. And no matter what you are going through, and no matter what you believe about the cross, may God grant you the hope in knowing that Sunday is coming. Sunday is always coming. 
the cross is never the end of the story. Until next time, my name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and you are listening to The Unlearning Podcast.